And I think it's really ironic that we're doing a radio podcast and the last two things that we're talking about are the visual and the somatic. And I think that for me is a great example of let's start looking at people who have less. And I know it's a cliche, mm. we still don't act on it. But I think we still don't actually do it. Right. We, we know we should and we make ourselves feel better by maybe giving to charity. But the real way of acting on that is to stop looking for more ourselves, I think. So I usually start with the biggest lie in the corporate world is I hear what you're saying. So when, mm -hmm. I, hear, when I hear someone in a meeting say, I hear what you say, that usually means I have been trying to find a space to interrupt you so that I can say what I want to say. Welcome to This Is Personal, Rewinding a Life, a podcast about people's personal journeys of discovery and recreation. I'm Dan Simon. We dig deep to understand the essence of each guest. How did they get to this point in their life? We all have stories to tell about our own lives that help the rest of us realize who we are and what we could become. As a life coach, I've always been intrigued by the stories people tell. What were the trials, tragedies, and triumphs they encountered while navigating through life? There are no mistakes in life, only experiences and lots of contrast. If we can have compassion for others, can't we have the same for ourselves? That's always been my personal mission, to remind people the truth of who they are, to remind them that they've done their very best. In each episode, that's what you'll find, a beautiful soul doing their best to create a life that's fulfilling and rewarding. Enjoy the stories. Welcome to part two of having more fun with Kay Scora. And Kay, I know that that title could have a couple of different meanings, but uh, it is the name of your website, havemorefun.org. <laughs> so we will delve into more of Kay's passions, convictions, and her way of looking at the world in the show, including the best thing parents can do for their children, the biggest lie in the corporate world, how to use visual language and movement to express yourself, how real charity starts when you stop looking for more, what we can learn from disease, and of course, whatever your show needs, how gut bacteria affect the way that we think. So let's get right to it. Welcome today, Kay. Hi, Dan. Thanks for inviting me back. This is great. Well, since I probably monopolized most of the conversation uh, uh, last time talking about myself, <laughs> I thought it would be the polite thing to do to invite you back. That's so, that is great. I also got rather carried away with conversation rather than talking about myself, which I guess is something I prefer. Well, no, that's, uh, I think it was a fun conversation. Um, I'd like to maybe start off recapping, uh, uh, for those that may have not heard part one of the podcast, uh, a little bit of what we talked about, uh, kind of give you my take, and then I'll let you kind of fill in, but we went back to where the spaceship landed, you got off, and you wanted to be a circus performer and a dancer, and both of those ideas were were uh, negated by your family who thought that wasn't quite right for you, and you uh, ended up uh, 
filling in a lot in between, uh, becoming a biochemist, then a, then uh, then in advertising, and in between squeezing out the life of lots of different adventures and uh, lots a lot happened. Then is that kind of a uh, a poor man's summary of what uh, of what we talked about last time? Why don't you help me with it? That's a really great summary of my life so far, Dan. And uh, I think the the bit that I've been reflecting on quite a lot since we last spoke is how long it took me to realize that advertising was not right for me. And, you know, I think I was sucked into sticking with that because I was so good at it. And it really took me quite a long time to get out, but I finally did 30 years ago and haven't looked back. Well, that's unbelievably powerful, isn't it? When you're really good at something and you get lots of uh, credit and external validation. Um, it's a hard, it's a difficult thing to walk away from, and there's probably a million logical reasons that tell you why you sh why you shouldn't. Yeah, and, um, you know, I was I was always the breadwinner in my marriage, so that held me in there as well. And today, I'm particularly reflecting on that escape because it's my son's twenty eighth birthday, and he his. Uh, emerging from the spaceship really gave me a great sense of perspective, really helped me see what was really important to me. And I certainly wanted to bring up someone with the values that I'd grown up with. So he's, I'm very grateful to him today. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Now you say that changed your attitude just from the moment he was born. Your whole attitude was changed in terms of what was important to you. I think so. I think it had been, it had been beginning to change. And then when I realized that this tiny human born with infinite possibility, it was up to me whether or not to close down some of that possibility or to keep his options open for as long as possible. And I think I decided that in order to keep his options open, I would have to open my options somewhat as well he needed to grow up in a household where people were doing what they loved and people were doing what was right yeah. wow that's uh, you know that's the uh, that's the concept of uh, you set an example based on who you are not on what you're doing what you're telling somebody else to do it's quite quite different isn't it oh yes yeah yeah I just had a conversation on a podcast yesterday with um, with a woman that's in her 50s. Her name was uh, Nancy, but she essentially had to raise herself. And she actually, um, she was, she had a gap of, uh, I think, 16 years between her two siblings that were older. And uh, so she was just kind of a surprise. And I think that her Parents weren't quite prepared for it and didn't want to do the work and put the effort in. And she was kind of, kind of all on her own. And what was interesting was that it turned out very, uh, her life turned out very well. And she was very responsible and had this idea of, of personal responsibility and independence that, that she got from the fact that she, in her whole life, she had nobody else to really depend on but herself. And you could say, hey, that maybe that wasn't ideal. But it's amazing how some people turn out and make uh, 
you know, make lemons out of, uh, make lemonade out of lemons and some go the other direction. Maybe that teaches us that the best thing the parents can do is stay out of the way. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. You know, provide that guarantee that we'll be there if you fall, but it's up to you to fly. Yeah, this whole idea in today's world, certainly in the United States, of uh, being a helicopter parent and making sure that that you that that I'll be I'll be six inches away from you if you fall to take care of your scraped knee and you know anything that happens I'll uh, rescue you is not a way to make a an independent self sufficient uh, adult when they their whole life didn't have to really have any consequences, um, but that's kind of the direction that our culture has gone in. Uh, in, in many ways over here. You know, that, um, that very neatly brings me on to something that I wanted to talk about in my amazing life these days. I recently found myself involved in doing some research with inner city young people, teenagers mainly, right. who were on the fringes of knife crime and gang crime. They weren't necessarily in it, but they knew people who were. They were in those groups. And so many of them talked to me about, most of them were from single parent families. They talked to me about how hard their mothers work. They would say things like, I get up in the morning to go to school and she has already gone to work. And then after school, I get home and she is still at work. And, but I know that she cares for me because she leaves food for me. She leaves notes for me. And these kids are so independent and yet so cared for. And these are the ones that, as I said, haven't been involved in the crime. And it's because even though their mom is not there, they know that she loves them and they want to reciprocate. And they know how disappointed their mothers would be if they got into that world. So that really taught me that we don't need to be hovering. If our difficult life takes us out of our children's life, we can still show them that we love them. Yes. So this is called, uh, the event you're involved in is called uh, Turning the Tables, I believe, right? Right. So that piece of research, Dan, inspired me to start this conference. The first one, the pilot one, is going to be on November 29th here in London, and it's an opportunity for business leaders and modern elders like us to sit in the audience and listen to young people who've had tough lives telling them what those young people have learned. So it's an opportunity for senior business people, for leaders to listen to young people and learn from them. And this was also inspired by the fact that I've done a lot of work on inclusion and diversity in the corporate world over the years. And I became really angry about the box ticking mentality. Right. The fact that so long as we've got a person of color, a woman, a transgender person in the room, we've ticked the box, it's okay. And what I found was that so many of those people of color, women, transgender people, actually think the same way as the pale male and stales. They've been to the same colleges, they've got the same degrees. And my, my passionate belief is that we need different ways of thinking, not just different ways of looking. 
Well, that's really what diversity is, right? Yeah. Diversity of thought, diversity of ideas, and uh, but that's much more difficult than than ticking the box. <laughs> well, that's right because it it challenges the system, doesn't it? It makes us rethink the entire system that we live within. Um, so tell me a little bit more, and, I, and I'll post the, the links in the show notes. But uh, I neglected to do this up front, but. Uh, uh, tell everybody how they can both find you and how they can find out more about uh, the event in London, Turning the Tables as well. Oh, well, great. Thank you. You can find out more about me on my website, which is havemorefun.org. My company is called Have More Fun. And I called it that because I believe that fun is focus. That when people are enjoying themselves, they're much more focused than when they're anxious and miserable. So havemorefun.org is the company website and you can find out more about me and my partner in crime in this, Paul Loper, who's based in San Francisco. And then there'll be links to turning the tables on that. We're still in the process of finalizing the speaker list and I have a great young man doing the design for me and someone else helping me with social media. So when we get it all up and running, which will be at the end of this month, all the links will be on havemorefun.org. So this will be an all day event? Yeah, it's a one day event. I wanted to go straight into a two day, but a very wise mentor of mine <laughs> told me to slow down. Slow down, Kay. Uh, this is a historical thing with me. Everyone in this neighborhood here in London will tell you that Kay is the fastest walker in the neighborhood. I do everything at top speed. So Paul told me to slow down. He said, do a one day event first, see how it goes. So we're going to run nine to five. There will be about nine or 10 young speakers and every three speakers will have a short Q&A panel discussion. And then we'll make space at the end of the day for people to meet the speakers one-on-one. -on -one. Then we'll have their little space in the room and people can chat to them. So tell me what you think the, the result will be of this, because I think it's a fabulous idea. What do you see happening? Who's, who's going to be affected the most wow. by this? Um, I have no idea what will happen. <laughs> uh, but what I, what I hope for is, first of all, that some of the young people will gain a lot from the experience of standing up on stage and being heard. So I'm offering coaching to all of them in writing and delivering their talk. Uh, but that's only part of it. The biggest part of it for me is the fact that they will be heard because they're used to not being heard. Right. So that's important to me. Uh, the questions that people ask will, I hope, let those young people know that they've been heard. And then on the other side, I hope that the business people and the politicians, I hope, who are in the room, will go away and really think about what sort of future they are designing. And are they really designing for young people or are they designing for us old folks? So yeah, redesign of the future would be a good outcome. Um, because they really don't have a clue. And I think people do what's in, in, in the absence of some larger energetic inspiration, people are going to do what's best for them <laughs> and to be able to, uh, actually think forward in terms of what's best for the the future is uh, probably uh, not there very much, is it? Oh dear, that's a sad truth, isn't it, Dan? 
Yeah, I guess part of what I'm hoping for, and I'm only just realizing this thanks to your great questioning, is that I would like them all to fall in love with each other a bit. So I'd like the audience to fall in love with the speakers and the speakers to fall in love with the audience so that they see that there is a shared common future. It's not us against you. And making the young people's future better doesn't take anything away from you. In fact, it adds. Yeah, I love that, Kay, because it says that it starts, things start with having actually a relationship, having some kind of a real connection uh, between people. Isn't That's kind of where everything starts, doesn't it? Nothing good is going to come from... Uh, you, we've got the boxes ticked and here's your assignment, go ahead and do it. And if you don't, then you're out kind of thing. That's, that's not really beneficial, but again, that's, uh, uh, that's an easy way to, that's an easy way to do it when it's all about the numbers. It's all about the bottom line instead of, uh, it's about the relationship and uh, what you can build together. That's right. And again, thank you. I've just realized this, that what I really want is for unmediated conversations to happen. I think there's a lot of research, there's a lot of data and focus group research amongst young people, which is fed into our business and organizational leaders, but there's very little direct conversation. Right. And so I'd like to foster direct conversations between the elders and the youth. And I think this has got worse. The, the mediated conversation has become greater part of our conversations because young people have drifted into their world of screens and digital and older people have drifted into their palaces and their far too busy lives. I hear so many of my former colleagues talking about how they go to work at seven in the morning, get home at 10 in the evening. And they're still doing that. So they don't have time for direct connection. So I hope that's something else that happens with turning the tables, that we have direct conversations. Well, I think it's an unbelievable idea. It's an awesome idea. That's, uh, it'll be fascinating to see where it, where it goes and what develops. But uh, that whole idea of, and, you know, it goes back to talking, what you mentioned before about raising kids, that, you know, just try and stay out of the way let them figure things out on their own, let them enjoy life. Don't put a bunch of responsibilities about when you're five years old that you need to figure out what you're going to do with your life and you know, all the, all the stuff. And you got to, you got to start studying. So you make sure you get into the right school and the right, uh, you know, the right uh, private school and the right college and all that stuff. And the pressures are, uh, that are put on kids are completely in my idea completely unnecessary and many times they're just serving the ego of the of the parents so they can live uh, vicariously through the success of their kids and and say oh look what my kid did and it's not it's not to their benefit at all but I, I see it all the time i think you've just said something very insightful there which is look what my kid did instead of look who my kid is right you know wouldn't it be lovely if we all sang the praises of our children just doing something nice for the neighbor um, rather than achieving a place at the right college, a great job. Yeah, I mean, this, this whole college scandal that happened the last uh, few months ago here in the U.S. of bribing officials to get the, uh, the, 
the famous people and the rich people are buying their kids into Stanford and the, into these uh, Ivy League institutions and and uh, and just thinking it's it's okay to cheat. That's what everybody does. I'll I'll get my kid in there, and it's 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 very corrosive in terms of what message it sends. Uh, yeah. I, I did read about that and I was horrified, but not surprised. No. That's that kind of crime and let's name it as a crime has been going on for so long and yet they get away with it. Yeah. Yeah. We could do with a lot less pontificating and, and, uh, and supremacy versus just, uh, letting people be, let, letting kids be what they want to be and giving them an opportunity to discover. But, uh, yeah, I think the, uh, your uh, program should be very interesting on uh, both sides. It may even be more beneficial for the business executives and the politicians to hear. Yes, I, that's what I'm really hoping for. I hope it will be inspiring for them. I think there's something very interesting in it for me as well about the idea of looking at those with less than you rather than looking at those with more. So that college scandal that you mentioned, I think is all about, you know, well, a few people have more than me, so I want to get more to be more like them. And I had a very inspiring conversation with one of my young speakers on Saturday, went to his family home. He's only 16. And when he was 10 years old, he went to Brazil and with his mother and visited an orphanage and he describes being 10 years old and walking into an orphanage where there was a small boy in a crib and he said i knew this kid was too big to be in that baby bed and i realized he was in the baby bed because he had never learned to walk and he hadn't learned to walk because nobody ever interacted with him so i made it my mission while i was there aged 10 that before I left, I would teach that kid to walk. And he did. And I think that for him, that was a real turning point in his life that he realized that there were people who had less than him. It was that kid that didn't even have enough interaction to learn how to walk. No one was taking that kid by the hands. No one was helping him to crawl and climb up things. And I think that for me is a great example of let's start looking at people who have less. And I know it's a cliche, but we still don't act on it. Say that last thing again, Kay. I, missed I said, I know that it's a cliche that we should look at those who have less, but I think we still don't actually do it. Right. We, we know we should, and we make ourselves feel better by maybe giving to charity. But the real way of acting on that is to stop looking for more ourselves, I think. Yeah, I agree. And sometimes it's helpful to slow down, isn't it? Oh, yes. That's That's been a challenge with me my entire life as well, is to just slow down because you start noticing things when you slow down that when you're moving at breakneck speed that you, you miss a lot of things. And uh, I don't know what I mentioned this in the last podcast, but I, you know, using the logical mind to figure things out has been uh, uh, has been unsuccessful for me. You know, all the things I tried to figure out to make the best decisions, the best choices, and weigh all the options and, you know, 
the pros and the cons and all that stuff. Uh, almost every time I put all kinds of effort into it, it usually turned out badly. And all the uh, beautiful, almost all the beautiful things that happened in my life that were uh, unbelievably fantastic and uh, magical, they were never planned. I didn't know they were going to happen. People just popped in and appeared and circumstances and opportunities appeared that I didn't have any idea were, were uh, even uh, on the radar. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's amazing when you put your, you get your energy in the right place and you, you talk about having more fun. It's about, you know, for me, it's about you know, making the choice to feel good regardless of the circumstances, to feel, uh, to figure out how to be happy today uh, without regard to what you don't have or what's not perfect, what's not right. Um, and then all kinds of things show up that you didn't even know were going to show up because you've attracted it with your energy. But that to me would be a good thing to teach children, but you can't teach them unless you're practicing it yourself. You can't tell them to read a book about it. It's something they either have to see by example. And, you know, we talked last time about all the inspirations you had, the teachers that were inspirations for you, that uh, that was and energy that they transmitted to you and to other students that uh, that you took and you ran with. Mm. But you don't do that when you're ticking the boxes. You're in a hurry, and you gotta you gotta get the job done, and you gotta make a profit, and you gotta get the quarterly report and all that stuff. None of that seems to happen very much. I think that yeah, there's so much in the language that we use around these things, isn't there? Like uh, setting goals. And for me, you know, if, I, if I'm watching a football match, the goals are not the most important thing to me. I love the beauty of the game. I love the way they pass the ball. I love the occasional brilliant tackle, you know. So setting goals is just a tiny bit of what we're trying to do. And then I'm remembering something that uh, people often said to me, get your head down and revise for that exam. Get your head down and finish that report. And all the time we have our heads down, we are not noticing what's going on around us. And I've had, I'm I'm that crazy lady that talks to people on the bus here in London. And I have had some inspiring conversations and met some great people just by not having my head down in my book or my phone on the bus and looking around me and talking to people. So I think there's a lot of dangerous language we use, like be goal-oriented, get your head down. What about be play-oriented and lift your head up? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, my interpretation, I'm not sure who who told me that's what made so much sense to me about a goal. Uh, The purpose of having a goal is is to get you excited. The fact is that you're probably not going to reach that particular goal, and the goal itself is not is not important. What's important uh, is that when you have a goal, you're putting you're putting out a dream, you're putting something out into the vortex that's important to you, and that changes uh, your internal chemistry, it gets you excited, and that that process of becoming excited about something in the future that you'd like to manifest is. Um, is really the only thing that's important. It's not important that that the way you wrote it out that you're going to have X million dollars in three years, or you're going to have this job or this relationship. Uh, 
that is not important because it actually the universe is going to deliver things that could be far superior to what you actually dreamed of. And if you only have one thing in mind, this particular goal, you may miss uh, other opportunities that come in that could be even better than what you dreamed. So uh, the goal is very, very important to have the goal. But then you let it go and don't, and you just, and you focus on the energy it created, the excitement, and then you go and live your life. That's a great one. I love that. Uh, and I think the best possible goal is to be excited. <laughs> so, you know, ask yourself every moment of the day, am I excited about this? Am I engaged right. by this? Am I interested in this? And, uh, you know, our mutual friend uh, in uh, Mexico, the shaman Saul, uh, he said something very simple and, and uh, but very profound, which was, uh, you ask and then you wait. Yes. You ask and you wait. And he says, don't, you don't do nothing while you're waiting. You could do something, but that, that thing of waiting, which means it's, you've given up, I have to have it now, I have to have it exactly the way it's, I think I have to have it, I won't be satisfied and I'll be unhappy until I get it. Uh, when you're willing to wait, then you can be happy right now. And it's a, <laughs> it's a very powerful way of, of looking at things and uh, requires some more maturity to be able to delay that gratification. But it seems to me that makes sense. That's, that's a lovely example. And yes, very Saul indeed. It's, it has reminded me of uh, doing a headstand in yoga. I know that's a bizarre thing for it to remind me of. But I, one of my other strings to my bow is I did a yoga teacher training course when I was, I guess, in my 40s. And one of the best lessons I learned was not to try to get into the pose, but let the pose happen. And the best example for me is when going into a headstand. So I, I interlock my fingers, I place my forearms on the mat, I put my head into the space between my hands, and then I walk my feet towards my face. So I'm doubled over, walking my feet towards my face, and I wait for my feet to take off, and they will. If I press down into the mat and walk my feet close to my face, my legs eventually just float up into the air. Mm. So I don't have to kick, I don't have to force myself, it just happens. And for me, that's the finest example of just wait. And if your feet don't leave the floor today, well, maybe they will tomorrow. Wow. That's also an example from, uh, I think of David Hawkins' book, Power Versus Force. Ah. You know, the, and it's just, it's just an awesome book. But the idea that your inherent power doesn't, when you're, when you're living in your power, you're not required to force things. Uh, they happen of their own accord when, when they're supposed to happen. That's and, right. And, uh, yeah, that book was very influential on me because I think and it's certainly a very male thing, but you know, for almost all my life, I, I was taught and I practiced the idea of you want something to happen, you got to make it happen through the power of your will, through manipulation, through anything. You're just going to go like a bull in a china shop and just get everything out of the way 
and force it to happen. And <laughs> that takes a, and you can certainly get some success that way, but that takes a lot of energy and, and uh, it's actually much more difficult to always be trying to force things to happen because it's always a, uh, it's a struggle. My, I, my idea of life was always that life's a struggle. Everything has to be really hard. And uh, it, it doesn't have to be when you relax a little bit and you're willing to wait and let things happen when they happen and you go into the headstand when you, when you go into it. So yeah, I love that example. Okay. Yeah, I, lo- I love the, the contrast between force it to happen and let it happen. And, you know, I noticed this a lot with the leaders that I've worked with over the years in organizations, that it's a huge release for them when they realize that they don't have to force the people who work with them to do things the way that they did them. If they let their teams find a way for a start the ways are probably better because your younger teams probably know more about this shit than you do. It really takes the pressure off the leader to start looking for new opportunities and the team's a lot happier. So, you know, rather than forcing your team to do it your way, you let them find their own way and you can go off and dream and have great new ideas. Yeah, that makes sense. It's hard for people to give up that control. I mean, it's the, the, the easy way for somebody to do it, especially if you control things all your life, is that uh, you're not going to do it. It's not going to get done if you do it your way. you got to do it my way. <laughs> letting, yeah. letting go of that is, is uh, for many of us, not so easy. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Give it to me. I'll do it. Just hand it over. I'll do it. Oh, for goodness sake, let me do it. Yeah. I've had that challenge myself. Hey, I've pulled a few quotes off of your website. I'd like your comments on those. Uh-oh. Okay. <laughs> uh, levels of listening. Yes. Yes. I try to teach people to listen more. And when I start teaching this, I usually start with the biggest lie in the corporate world is I hear what you're saying. So when mm-hmm. I hear when I hear someone in a meeting say, I hear what you say, that usually means I have been trying to find a space to interrupt you so that I can say what I want to say. Right. So what I encourage people to do is really hear what the other is saying. Not make assumptions about what they meant to say, but really, really listen to the words and phrases that they are using. And it's a very difficult practice because most of us are used to listening for ideas, listening for similarities with the other person who's talking, but we're not really listening to the words and phrases. So I encourage people to do that for a number of reasons. One is so that you can play back to the speaker what they said, which makes them feel great. You really listened. Right. It helps them to realize when they were not expressing what they thought they were expressing. And when you play back the visual language that they use, sometimes it inspires everyone in the room. You know, when you just talked about forcing and letting. So if you play back to someone, I heard you say forcing this, I heard you say allowing, you'll get images in your mind just by repeating those words of, a bull charging into a wall or 
someone allowing someone into a store through the door. So I think the listening very carefully serves a lot of functions. If we practice hard enough doing that, we can achieve the state where we can both listen and have ideas at the same time. Just like any practice, if you practice it enough, you can do it almost unconsciously. So it doesn't need to stop us having ideas and being inspired, but it's adding an extra layer. So that's the levels of listening thing that we practice. We have people practice, what did I hear you say? What actual words and phrases? And it's a practice that comes from Gestalt therapy. Then we have them say, because of what I heard you say, I think I understand this about you. And you check in with the other. You say, is that right? Is that what you meant? Am I getting this right? And you allow them to respond. And then the third level of listening is, because of what I've heard you say, this is what I think we share. This is what I think we could do together. So that's that thing. And I'm really, really happy to give that away to the universe because I honestly think the world, world would be a much better place if we listened better. No, no question about it, instead of talking past each other. Um, learning from disease. <laughs> ah, yes. So this comes back. Recently, I've been trying to forgive myself for being a scientist. That's a strange way of putting it. I've been trying to reincorporate my science training into my work with leaders and my comedy writing. And I realized how clever diseases are. You know, we wouldn't be so afraid of them if they weren't clever. Uh, We've just seen recently in the Democratic Republic of Congo, there's been another outbreak of Ebola. And there are diseases which just keep on going. Even when we think we've obliterated them, they come back. So I decided to look at a collection of well-known diseases. um, In I have a presentation around it, but I've included Ebola. um, I've included HIV, malaria. I've also included addictions, such as alcoholism. And what I've done is break down how they work on the body, so the physiology of how they work on the human, and then gone, so what can we learn from the fact that, for example, Ebola chooses a site of uh, immune invisibility, where it can go and hang out and there are no symptoms. You don't know that the Ebola is there. It's hanging out in a part of your body where it doesn't produce symptoms. And it just hangs out there whistling to itself and twiddling its thumbs. And then after maybe a year, it finds its way into a part of your body where it does have symptoms and you didn't even know you had it. You might've traveled to another country. So Ebola got a free ride from Republic of Congo to California and it starts up again. So yeah, I just went back and dug deep into a wide range of diseases to see what we could learn. So what would, Interesting. yeah, what would be my version of a site of immune invisibility or what would be my version of, you know, making my host very happy that I was there. That's what alcoholism does. Like the host thinks they're having a great time for a while. So yeah, that was that one. Ah, very interesting. Uh, and we're almost running out of time again, Kay. Uh, that's the have more fun image bank. What's that? Okay. This, I have to thank some people that I worked with in California or maybe 30 years ago. 
Vicky Johns and Arnie Jacobson, we were doing a lot of qualitative research together and they started bringing images into focus groups and tossing the images out on the table and saying, choose an image to represent how you feel. And I stole this from them. And I've been collecting images for 30 years and I've got a huge bank of images that we use to help people express themselves. And sometimes mm -hmm. we're quite strict with this. We say, you can take an image, uh, but you, you can't think about the words. Just grab an image which, which resonates with you and then think of the words after you've chosen the image. So let's try and come at our reasoning from a visual point of view rather than always coming from a verbal point of view. So that's that. Yeah, that whole idea that you don't actually need the words that you, the image may give you a feeling. Yeah. If you stay in touch with the feeling, you don't actually need to describe, describe it with words. In fact, you usually can't really accurately describe it with words. That's so true, Dan. That's very perceptive of you that we do then go onto the stage where we say, perhaps we don't need the words at all. Perhaps we all understand just by looking at this image and feeling what we feel. Yeah. Um, just deciding which is the last one. I like the, the two of these, but the movement is the mother of all cognition. It forms, uh, it forms the eye that moves before the eye that moves, forms movement. Yes. By Joanna Parvivian. Uh, tell me about that. I... Uh, that there is a quote, I think it's from the Bible, isn't it? In the beginning was the word. Okay. And of course, in the beginning was not the word. In the beginning was the movement. Before, as humans, we developed language, we moved. And the first thing that babies do is they make sound, but it's not words. And they move to express themselves. So... I think also I find that body language in, in the workplace, in relationships, we all pay lip service to how important it is, but we don't really work on it. So I always, when I'm working with people, try to get them to be very conscious of how they're moving and the messages that their body is sending out. And at the other end of that, also, I try to get people to express themselves by moving in a certain way, which is why I love working with my partner, who you'll also meet on the website, Paul Loper, because he is a choreographer and a dancer, and he's also a somatic academic. And he's marvelous with all of this movement as a way of communication stuff. And I think it's really ironic that we're doing a radio podcasts and the last two things that we're talking about are the visual and the somatic yeah that uh, paying attention to your body it's so easy for people to forget it but um i you know i've learned a while ago that uh, i can live through paying attention to what my gut is telling me and disregard you know you can listen to your gut you can listen to your heart and you can listen to your mind and oftentimes the mind is the least accurate to give you information. And the more you spend time listening to your, to your gut and what it feels like down there, because your gut will never betray you. It won't give you the wrong answer. You know, you know deep down what the real answer, what the right answer is in terms of which way to proceed. But if you're not in touch with that, you will just listen to your ego telling you what uh, 
things you ought to do to keep you safe. Well, on, on that note, I would recommend to everyone to read some of the recent research about the microbiome, the gut bacteria, because it's becoming increasingly clear that our, our state of mind is affected by those gut bacteria. And one book that you might want to take a look at is Missing Microbiomes, which is all about the dumbing down of the gut bacteria through our increasingly processed diet and what, how that's affecting mental health. Yeah, that's, I've done a lot of studying on that uh, recently, and it's almost like the, uh, the reason for humans' existence is to uh, house the, uh, the bacteria in your gut, and, uh, you know, we're just kind of an afterthought. <laughs> that's right, yeah. But uh, it's amazing what power that has over everything in terms of all the processes in the body and, and, and the brain uh, is the gut microbiome. And, uh, and today you can get all of that, analyze what's in there and how it changes based on different things. Uh, um, you can get the, that analyzed, but it's very complicated. But uh, yeah, thank you for that. I'll post that, uh, I'll post that in the show notes as well. Thank you. Um, and if people go to the website, the Have More Fun website, there's a reading list on there as well. And there's a lot in there on the whole mind, body, mind and body part of the same thing. So yeah, awesome. references. Okay. Thank you so much uh, again for, for uh, consenting to come back for part two of the podcast. And uh, I'm thinking there's more to cover, especially with regard to uh, your ideas in terms of having more fun. Cause I, 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 couldn't agree more that that that's why we're here you know, if we're here to to follow other people's directives about what you're supposed to do and how to make more money and acquire more things and it doesn't generally lead to happiness and uh, if the if the prime directive is how do we have more fun i think the rest of it uh usually works out quite well and uh, it's something that i've uh, worked with and are still working with to figure out in a more consistent manner but uh, uh, I'm glad you've shown up to lead the way and be a real leader in uh, in these um, uh, areas of life that uh, are pretty well neglected out there so I think it's much needed so thank you and uh, hopefully we will speak again very soon. Thank you Dan it's been an absolute pleasure the time flies by. Yes it does thank you Kay. Thanks for listening to This Is Personal, Rewinding a Life. This was part two of Having More Fun with K-Scora. If you liked the episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and share this with your friends. That all would be really super appreciated. You can find me at dansimon.co, Instagram, dansimontv, or on Twitter, at dansimontv. And thanks for tuning in. See you next week.